I'm sitting here with Jeff Scoop, former leader of the National Socialist Movement, um, who has left the movement about 10 months ago. And we decided to have a little talk and address some things that are usually not getting addressed when we talk about former white supremacists. Thank you, Jeff, for joining me in this talk. Um, Thanks for having me. Um, I talk to farmers, as we call them, a lot, as I work with a lot of them and help them get out or help them de-radicalize. But every time I talk to them, I see similar stories, how they get in, similar stories when they have doubts. But one thing that is very often not getting addressed is actually the that a lot of people in the movement, they don't see a perspective when they have doubts, when they realize, is this the right thing? that I'm doing or not. And I think it's a good time to talk about these issues and give some answers. And let's find out from two people that have been in the movement for several years, in my case, almost 20 years, leading several white supremacist groups, including a um, clan group in Europe and building up um, clan groups in the US and somebody who led the National Socialist Movement for 25 years. Tell me just briefly in, in a minute or two how it worked for you getting in because the reasons for uh, why a lot of people get in hate groups, they're often the same, looking for a purpose, looking for an identity. And why they're going to do that, this is often different. Like some grew up, grew up in uh, dysfunctional families, some with a stable background. How was it for you? For me, I came from a, a good family background. Everything was stable growing up. I had a normal normal childhood um, but I was looking for a sense of purpose and, um, you know, uh, I think a lot of people in life need a mission or something, something, uh, to give them that sense of purpose. And for me, unfortunately, that purpose became the national socialist movement. And, um, obviously, you know, it was the wrong, it was the wrong, uh, purpose and, and it was incorrect, but that's the, what, that's what got me there was finding finding that movement and uh, my interest in history and my German heritage, you know, that's that was my path to it. And once I got in there, you, you're just stuck in, in a sense. Um, committed to the sense, committed to the sense of you were willing to, you know, I, I'm speaking in second person, third person, excuse me, but I was so committed that literally anything, nothing could push me out, you know, that I was that committed to it. Um, you could be on the outs with your family. You could uh, have threats of going to jail. You, you know, people try over the years, people have tried to kill me. You know, um, none of that mattered because the cause was above everything. And um, that's a hard... Uh, it's it's like a barrier in your own mind or a prison in your own mind, and um, getting past that and getting beyond that is a is a real challenge, and um, when you're stuck in that that type of mindset, I, that's something I always talk about too. You're stuck in your bubble. Yep. And I always say, look, if you have a problem in your marriage, you're probably gonna talk to who? Probably to your mother, to your best friend. You don't go to your neighbor and ring the doorbell and say, hey, I've got some issues with, with my wife. Why not? Because they're not living in your bubble with you. Right. And it's the same thing here. So you, you don't know what this world has actually to offer. If you have doubts, you're stuck with your mindset. 
uh, that's all you have. And I had that too after 15 years. Look, I wasn't even listening to mainstream music anymore. Exactly. Um, funny story. Just a couple of weeks ago, we're sitting and uh, driving in the car, my wife and me. And there was a song on. I was like, when is that song from? I, I knew the song because I heard it before. And she was like, oh, from 95. I'm like, shit, I missed that one too. So the fun part is all the oldies are actually new to me. So <laughs> Right, right. Uh, but it's it's really you're stuck in your bubble and 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 you realize anything that happened between '88 and 2002 for me, especially that time because that's when I was really stuck really tight in that bubble. I have no idea what happened in the outside world. Only what our enemies did. Yep. What they were trying to do: take everything away from us, taking over the world, destroying the white race. This, these was all the fears we had, not realizing what was really going on. And, and that's a really good point, and I think that's, that's something that even a lot of us that were there, don't even, you don't even realize it at the time, but when you need somebody to talk to, everyone else is in that bubble or in that echo chamber. I mean, that is, that's exactly it. And, that's, and they don't want you to leave. Of course right, not. right. I mean, even especially even, if you're the leader, who who wants to to tell the leader? Oh, man, man, you're right. I mean, they're looking up to you. Right. They want you to reassure them. Exactly. And they don't want the leader to have doubts, so they they don't want to see that. You know that too. That adds a whole another layer right. of complications to leaving when you're in in that sort of position. On my own story, um, when I left, and you know, when I I I was trying to leave for a couple of years. In my in my mind, racism had sort of dissipated. Anti-Semitism had not until until I had actually left. Um, then that had dissipated. That was the that was the hardest thing for me to get past was the anti-Semitism. But the racism kind of dissipated away in the last couple of years that I was in. But um, why I th- is that? Did were you exposed to yes. African Americans that you actually could could really um, experience it? Absolutely. Um, well, I'm from Minnesota originally, and uh, I grew up in a pretty much all-white area. Um, when I moved to Detroit in December of '07, I became, ex- you know, Detroit's a, uh, the whites are the minority there. So I, on a daily basis, and in the neighborhood, neighborhood I lived in, and um, that I, where I'm at, you know, I'm exposed to people of different races on a everyday basis. So finding commonalities and meeting different people, it's like these people's struggles and their issues and their things that are going on at home are the same as mine. And I mean, it sounds so simple. Now, looking back on it, you, you, you know, it, it's almost laughable. But when you're inside that bubble, you don't experience all these other things. Um, it's, it's, re- it's really real. It's, it's like you're keeping yourself from experiencing yeah. Those things. Yeah, I see it as like a barrier. The best way I can explain it is like a prison in your mind or a barrier, and you can't get beyond it. You can't get and beyond that. You set that. those barriers yourself. You actually yes. set the boundaries there. No one's, no one's you, put you them put, there. You put the bars on the window, and you can't get out. And exactly, exactly. Um, it's a self-made barrier or, or, a, or a prison, and it's in your head. And, and it's getting beyond that is so... Um, I think a lot of times for people... It, it's similar, and I used to not like this reference, but it's similar to a cult. And, I, and when I was in the movement and different women that I would date, they'd say, you know, this is like a cult, Jeff, if they'd attend an event. And I'd get really angry about it. I said, no, it's not a cult. But there is similar trappings where when you're in a cult, all of everybody you know is in the cult. 
And the movement is like that in that way. As much as I didn't like that, I see now that I'm out, I see those similarities, and it really it's, truly it's a tight, is. It's a tight bubble, and, and, and it's, it's really hard. And same with a cult, and I sometimes compare it to an abusive relationship. Yeah. Mostly women are stuck in that. But uh, you know, it's to- sometimes you know it's toxic. You've got your good times, and everybody who comes out of some kind of group, you can't deny it. you had good times. It is what it is. There's good times in abusive relationships too, even if you don't want to talk about it. Everything has good times, um, but you also know it's toxic. And even the most hardcore leaders, and I guarantee you, in 25 years, you were sitting there numerous times when you were thinking, "I don't know if that's the right thing." And yeah. we all have those doubts. If you've that 25 years, 50 years, but we put those doubts on a on on the side, on a stack, it grows to a hill, to a mountain. Some put some take it to their graves. And the problem I see is we live in that bubble and so tight. We don't. We see that society is as hateful when we're in those groups, and they show us a lot of hate. Honestly, who wants right. to talk to a Nazi? Who <clears throat> wants to talk to somebody who's got a swastika tattooed on on their neck? And when I talk to the Jewish community and, and then I ask one of the people in the audience, um, what would you do if you walk out there tomorrow at noon and there's a guy with a swastika? Would you talk to him? I said, hell no. Rather call the cops. Because uh, they're taught to act like that as we were taught to act like this. Right. And, um, and we know that. And we know if you had a rally, what were you expecting? Honestly, when you, when you had an NSM rally... When we had rallies, we expect we would expect either it, it could go two different ways: lots of hollering and screaming, and you know things like that, or straight up violence uh, from the other side. But you always expected the other side to be there, yep, and yell at you always for sure. At least, at least, and, and you, you wanted that. I wanted that. It, it helped us recruit. You know, right. we, we saw it as it was a, proving your point. Exactly, and and I can I can give an example. We had a rally. I think it was it was, and I don't think it was. It was in Tupelo, Mississippi, and there was almost nobody in the audience. And the guys after that event, it was NSM and Clan. And after that event, everybody was like, "This was the most boring rally ever." You know, we last year when we did something, we got into a big fight. That was great. Because you know they knew they couldn't attack somebody because that's where our rules were. But if you were physically attacked, then you could defend yourself. So right. they waited. That was the excuse. Right and here, you have the same excuse because you get a lot of hate back. They yep. yell at you, KKK, go away, and whatever. Yep. And of course, they hate me, so I hate you back. But they say the same thing. Well, you hate me, so I hate you back. Yep. And you're stuck in that vicious cycle. But also, since you know they hate you. Well, you're not going to talk to them. Honestly, why would you talk to somebody who hates you? Yes. And we thought the same when I talked to the black community, the same. Would you talk to somebody who who appears or looks like a a racist and a Klan member? Hell no. Right. Why? Well, I'm not talking to anybody who hates me. Well, this is how we felt in the movement. So so you're even stuck in the bubble even more. And then you're thinking about that outside world and you're thinking, you're sitting there with your doubts. And you're thinking about, what if? What if I would leave that group I'm in tomorrow? What will this world offer? Yeah, that's... What, what, what can I do? What kind of value will I have to that society? And you actually realize, zero. 
you realize there's no future, there's no perspective, nobody will want you, you will, you will, be, you will appear to be a traitor to your, to your old family, to your old world, and the new world doesn't want you. Why leave in the first place? That, and then you don't leave. That is, the biggest, that is the biggest hurdle, I think, for people coming out and for everybody. Just like getting in, everybody has different reasons for getting in. But getting out, too, it makes it like for my own story, I can say how complicated it was for me. In my old world, I was on the top. You know, it was, it was easy in that sense. You know, my business was, was there. This is what I did my entire life. You know, I... It, it became easy because it was something that I had been doing for so long. And everybody everybody's, has a different journey in and out. But for me, my whole life, my investments, everything that I had, my savings, it was all wrapped up and put into both the business and to the movement. And, um, you know, so there was, when, when you're coming out, and I don't know if, if uh, when you're coming out, you think about all these different things and you think, what am I going to put on my uh, job resume? For me, you know, commander of the National Socialist Movement, uh, record, uh, white power record label executive. You know, I mean, what, what do you put on your, on your resume? So I mean, that's as bad as, as, as having a felony. Worse. Yeah, it's even worse. worse yeah, but yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it's like um, you're set to fail. Yep. And you don't. You, nobody wants to fail. I'm honest. Nobody. Everybody wants to be happy. I mean, we, we know in a hate group, you can you don't turn out to be happy. It's because you're busy hating. You're busy. You're waking up, waiting for the cops to kick in your door. You're waiting for the Jews to take over the world. You're waiting for the race war to begin. Yep. And and you're afraid of traitors and infiltrators and feds. And and you're just busy all day long. And and that's how you how you wake up. And that's how you go to bed. We're thinking about getting out of a hate group, especially in a leading position, but not only. Um, and, and you know you're set to fail because these are just your experiences in this, in this world out there. Because you know, okay, when you have a rally, they will yell at you. you will, they will show you that they hate you. They do not want you, period. What are you going to put on your resume? And also, you, you, people who, are, who were in those groups for a long time, I mean, we are broken people. It is what it is because there's PTSD involved. I mean, I mean, it's it's we're hardwired for such a long time. Even though we're not hateful people anymore, there's certain things in our minds that will take to our graves, and these are just hard to deal with. It, and um, I, we talked about it the other night uh, when we talk, especially to minorities. We were expecting them to blame us for our past. We're expecting them to to do the guilt trick, you know, and that's not what it is. They even tell you, hey, don't worry about it. Don't destroy yourself. Don't, don't make yourself feel that bad. Look at what you're doing now. Like, this is exactly the opposite from what we expected. It's, it's the exact opposite of what we expected, and I've experienced that as well since, since being out and talking with different people, exactly what you said. And some of the people that have been the most forgiving and that have been the most kind have been the people you would least expect it from, especially for, for me, the anti-Semitism was so deeply rooted that I, I just assumed that almost all Jews were inherently evil. And the Jewish people that I've met since I've been out have been some of the most kindest and forgiving and um, 
they can look beyond that and and just say hey what you what you're doing took a lot of courage what you're doing is really brave they've never asked anything out of me they've never you know said you need to do this you need to say no one's done that no right. one, and no, no one nobody's all. telling you you have to betray your people or whatever nothing like they that. give you free choice they say mm -hmm. join us come as a guest visit us talk to us stay away it's all fine As long as you, you, you just stop hating people, and this is the most, most important thing. You don't have to, it's so much about hate, you don't have to start hating your own people. No, you just have to stop hating. <laughs> this is what, and this, so I, I know it's hard. And this is hard because if you're stuck hating, and we always say in, in those movements, no, it's not about hate, it's about love. It's, it's about heritage, not hate. It's, we love our own people, we don't hate others. But we know it's it's technically technically a lie because the N word is used and 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 other curse words for 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 other minorities as well. But we and, say and those we say those things so much when we're in the movement that because I, I said they that. become normal. It's dehumanizing and 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 we don't see them as people anymore. But you believe it in your head. Like I actually believe that nothing that I was in the last number of years that I was involved. I actually believe that. I, Nothing I was doing was truly hateful. It was all about love for your people until someone asked me to go in and look up some of the old NSM literature. And I saw a black man chained to a tree. And I remember passing those out back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And other things like that. And I said, man, this is extremely hateful. Like, I wish I wouldn't have never even looked. But now being out, it's important right. that I did because there's, there was that. But I had convinced myself even that what I was doing wasn't it was a collateral damage because we were fighting a noble cause and we justified all that it was really like fighting a supervillain and we were the superheroes right in our minds but that's not I mean that's not, that's not what it was but right. that's that's how you feel and yes that's, that's that's really how you felt and you felt like you're fighting a noble cause and this this is you have that on the left on the right you have that everywhere all these right. people think they're fighting a noble cause a just cause and all these things when it becomes hateful when it becomes violent that's always just a justification that's just a collateral damage on your way say well if we have to save the world from this super villain yes there will be collateral damage you know and these were the collateral damages and we just just we could justify it Well, and that's, that's a good point because that's, that's the psychology of it. Nobody, sometimes I hear these stories like where people will say, oh, I was involved in it because I hate people. I just, I'm involved because I hate all these different people. I, don't, I was in the movie. We have those people too. There, there is some of those. There is some of those, but I don't think it's, it's the majority. I mean, I was there 25 years leading, 27 years total involved in the movement and there is there is those types that do yeah. join but i don't think that's the majority i don't think for me i couldn't have stayed 27 years over just hate i believed in my head that it was a noble and just cause and that i was defending my tribe and defending my people and only until i was able to actually get out and look back and go whoa you know this is not this is not what it was and you have those people in there that are preaching extremely hateful stuff and you, you're just letting it roll on by or ignoring it or choosing to uh, make excuses for it like you, like you said where you go well it's collateral damage or this, this thing happens and what you're doing is dehum you're dehumanizing and then because you're dehumanizing and you're treating others like garbage then people start doing it to you and it's a vicious cycle Right. where if we can find a place in the middle and we can go 
just have dialogue. I mean, that's one of the things that helped me get out is some of the dialogue with people of different races and backgrounds and even political views, like Dia Khan, for example. Dia and I are, are friends to this day. And, um, she was a woman that uh, did a film called White Right that, that I was in. And throughout the film, after and, in, and now, we still remain friends. And she's on the left. And she was just someone that had, and she's just one example. There's many people like, like this, but she's just one example of someone that treated me and others like a human being, like with respect, with kindness, and that positivity just radiates off of her. And, and think, it's things we don't expect. We just expect them to, to hate. Right. To hate us. We, and, and I have that even sometimes today. And when, I, when I'm going out, I, I do a lot of public speaking. And um, sometimes I'm just talking to, to the general public. And sometimes I'm talking to a certain community. Sometimes the black community, sometimes the Jewish community. And every time I talk, and I do that for a while now, and I'm out for, for almost 20 years now. I'm still scanning the room, uh, looking for somebody to leave. And sometimes people leave for whatever reason. But I always think, okay, it's because of me, my past, what I've said, what I've done. Because it's just stuck. It's a burden. Yeah. And um, as I said, and that's what a lot of minorities tell you and tell me. Take that burden off your shoulders. You're doing a good thing now. Yep. Don't blame yourself. Don't Don't feel trapped in that guilt and this this is what a lot of people have to get away from even in the movement there's a lot of guilt and 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 a lot of sides you have the political left you have the political right they they deal a lot with that guilt trick you know that so you have to be guilty and ashamed because you have to be guilty and ashamed of course and then name calling dehumanizing yep. both sides get defensive and say nope i don't I wasn't there, I didn't do that, and no, I'm not what you call me. And the other said, no, I'm not what you call me, because you don't feel like that. And it's just because people just don't sit down and talk, and they don't want to show that respect to each other that they actually expect themselves. And and it's a vicious cycle, like you said. We didn't want to show the respect to, to a minority either, because we knew we're not getting it back. And we did not, for the most part. And this is where it is a little bit different, you and I, we're already out. Mm -hmm. It's clear where we stand. So it is easier to sit down with the minority. It's easier for them to sit down, even though there might be a little bit of tension or, or maybe they might be a little leery. But if you're still in, it's a little bit harder to sit down because you have to understand if you are a minority, minorities used to be oppressed. Mm -hmm. you know, And of course, that, that creates anger anger towards the oppressor and if you were white nationalists you were part of that oppression team on the other side exactly so so there was already anger there and, and we knew that in the movement too so we didn't want to sit down they didn't want to sit down people both knew how it will end like charlottesville probably you know and that's why you don't sit down in the first place and, and in the movement the, the movement feels like they're being oppressed because in some cases you know um where sentences are handed down in different things, guys that are involved in, you know, hate crimes, involved in the movement, and I'm not justifying it one way or another, but they're given more length, lengthy sentences. And I know as a propagandist in the movement, those were things that we pointed out as recruitment tools. It's like, partly true. You have to understand a government or a society that wants to fight hate and feels helpless. Yep. They don't know how to fight it. 
and then you come up with stuff, okay, um, extended prison sentences without looking behind it. I talked to law enforcement before and they said, look, if somebody's getting out on a, or he, somebody is out and he, they commit another crime, said, TM, what are we supposed to do? Send them back to prison or have another parole or a probation sentence? What are we supposed to do? You don't, if somebody joined a gang maybe in prison or if it was a hate crime to start with, they just don't know. They have no idea because they're missing that inside. And law enforcement has done it wrong for a long time, like bringing in infiltrators not to gain information, but to trick them into doing something violent. Yep. And the movement knows that, and therefore you don't talk to them. Right. And therefore they're the enemy, period. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a little bit like a homemade problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, law enforcement, government and society... They just feel helpless. They have no idea how to, what to do. And I see that the more I go out there and you have law enforcement, government and society reaching out, co communities reaching out to us. They say, okay, you guys have been there. Help us out. How can we find, fight hate? Because they realize they failed. They failed. They even push sometimes people more in the corner. This is what I tell them too. If we put somebody in a box with a label racist, or if it, that person is already in there, then the society or a community that feels helpless and tell them you don't have to feel helpless. You have the big power, the great power to pull that person out of the box before the guys with the white hoods are pulling them out. And this is just what they don't know. They don't even know that. They have a hard time showing compassion to somebody who doesn't want to show them compassion right. and vice versa. So you received a lot of compassion too since you're out, right? Yes. And before, we talked about Dia Khan. Yeah, yeah, before before as well. And, be, and that compassion before, and there was other members of the NSM that are out as well that had never even met a Muslim person before, ever, in their lives. And that was the first one that they had met, and they had this preconceived notions, just like, I mean, in the movement, in the bubble, in the echo chamber, we have preconceived notions about all kinds of people. And you don't, because you're self-isolated and you, you, you're inside the bubble, you don't even give yourself a chance. Even if you're in an area where there's lots of people of different ethnicities, races, and religious backgrounds, quite often you will shut yourself off to those people. I can think of hundreds of times where different people of different races over the years had been kind to me and, and opened that door. And, and it's like I reflect back on it now, but at the time... it's. Ex it's exceptions, and we just think, well, that's you know, even mm -hmm. a broken, even a broken clock shows the right time twice a day, right? Yeah, yep. That's so how, you, that's that's how, how I felt about it. it. Or all oh, that's just good. That's just good in, in hiding their real intentions, right. because I thought, okay, they're right now they're nice, but tomorrow they will murder me in my bed, right? So exactly, that's the same thing. What I thought, um, it's a very negative, draining. Um, difficult way to look at the world and it puts an enormous amount of stress on you and um, it's like waking up like you had said earlier it's like waking up every day and, and expecting like the race war could break out at any time we're at we we are literally at war with the government we're at war with all of these other people that live here um, it's just a, a horrible way to, to live your life and I mean even even now like I talk about being out now I'm a civilian you know, that's, I mean, that's, and we were soldiers. Like, when and we, we felt, we felt like everybody else declared war on us. Yes. But 
it was we declared one everybody else really. yes yes exactly that's a great way of putting it too because that's exactly how it was like we were soldiers but we put ourselves there it was just it's like the prison of the mind or the barriers in your in your brain we put ourselves there and we became at war with the world and society and everybody around us and that's a horrible way to live so what i think it's so important for those that are listening and those that are looking at us now and going well because one of and this is one thing i wanted to talk about too was a lot of people think that to leave you have to go join antifa you have to um start hating your yourself and your people that you become a traitor these are all things that the movement says oh yeah oh yeah i had like comments on my videos and everything and people are like oh and now he's hating the white race right Uh, you know what no right i don't I don't hate anybody, you know? I stopped hating. That includes my own people. Yep. And of course I grew up in a certain culture and I still identify with the culture. I still partly identify also with other cultures I got to know, but yes, of course I identify as a white person of European descent. I mean, because that's what I am, you right. know? And if you join a religious group, then you identify with that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know? People just don't understand that. Uh, you're stuck with that hate idea so much and they think, okay, then you have to go get out and you have to start hating somebody else. Right. And they think and that... the secret is you don't. Right. And they think that you, you don't, but they think that. And that's one of the most important things, I think, um, to discuss and to get across is... And there's, there's people that say... There's people that encourage those and fill those stereotypes too by saying, oh, when you leave, you should go hand over information to Antifa. I, this is one of the criticisms I've faced since I've been out, was when I left, all right, I turned the organization over to the guy that's running the organization now. Mm-hmm. All right, you know, I, I handed it over to my former chief of staff when I left. There's people that say that was the wrong thing to do, that I should have taken the mailing lists, thousands of people from years and years, and handed those to Antifa. Yeah, but... The thing is, you also did a safe thing. It was safer for you. I mean, you can put yourself out there as a target as well. And I, I'm not a fan of, of this exposing culture, this calling out and exposing culture. That's like, like you... Let's but say it's, it's, not, it's, not that, it's not just that, though. I mean, sure, it's, it's safer or whatever, but that wasn't the reason. Ethics, just on, on the yeah. sheer principle of ethics, in the organization that I was in, we had non-disclosure agreements for all of the leaders, just like you. Yeah. if you worked for Apple Computers, you'd have a non-disclosure. We had non-disclosures. You don't disclose that. Yeah. Not to the government, not to, not to um, Antifa especially, not to, not to anyone. That that was just, we were in, you were entrusted with that information. Um, that stays with the group. For me, that right, was just, right. a, a, it was a no-brainer. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of people that would have, love to have paid for that information or anything right. like that. And, and in the movement, people think like, oh, well, he must have sold the organization out or all these sort of things. It was nothing like that. It was simply, all right, this stuff belongs to the organization. It stays with the organization. Guys, I'm leaving. I'm out. And, and there you go. So right. that's one of the things I think that people really need to understand is when you leave, it's not Just about... Just walk away. Yeah. It's not about being a traitor and it's not about, and it's not about even like hating those there's there's people that have asked me since i've been out like why do you hate us they think that when we leave that not only do we hate ourselves but like we hate them and all that 
we're compassionate. Like we want to help. We want to help them see that right. it's not like that. It's so much better on this side of things where you're happier that the compassion is in, in, in their defense in their mm -hmm. defense but this is what society has taught them because society like the guys who hold up the signs at the rallies kkk go away you know uh they show that hate and very often those people start hating the people and not only the ideology and i say never hate a human being for what they believe in right you can dislike the ideology but there's a human being behind that facade with the, the story, with feelings, with fears. And I would say those people had valid reasons for why they joined those groups, why they believe in that might not be valid to you or to me. To them, it's as valid as the monster under the bed is to a child. Yes. That's often fear-based, you know? Yep. And if you call them out, if you call them stupid, of course you put them in a corner. You, Of course they get defensive. Of course they don't want to talk. And... I don't want to talk to somebody who, who calls me stupid, who hates me as a person. Right. Somebody who hates me as a person and doesn't show me respect, I don't want to talk to. Somebody who opposes my opinion, sure, let's sit down and talk. But as a human being, show me respect. And this is what a lot of people outside in, in, in general society need to understand that especially in radical extremist groups, that is all about honor and respect. And if you don't meet those people with that respect, they're closing up. And if two people sit down, and this is, this is what I think that's a human problem throughout history. When two people with two opinions sit down, that could be even a married couple, they disagree on something, they sit down. What is the most likely situation? What is most likely to happen? They both try to convince each other that I'm right and you're wrong. And if you don't talk to each other, if you stay both in the, on these positions, it ends up in a divorce. And this happens too. You have the far left, the far right. You have somebody in the movement, you have somebody in society. You sit down. The person in society is trying to convince the person in the movement, I'm right, you're wrong, you need to leave. Shit, no, that's not what you want to talk about. You know, once, once in a while those people want to talk about how they feel, how they got there, their fears. And there's reasons for that. And this is like people like Dia Khan, like Daryl Davis. People that are minorities. They show that respect. They sit down with Klansmen, with neo-Nazi leaders, with gang members. To say, hey, let's talk. I don't agree what you stand for. But you're a human being. I respect you. And those people have been more effective than anything else that, that I've come across in, in all these years. Meeting both of them, they're... Dia and Daryl Davis are both incredible human beings and that kind of compassion and understanding, especially because they were victimized by people, by, by white people. You know, both of them yeah. have stories of that and, and um, had lived that. And to be able to take that compassion and that understanding and reach beyond that and be able to, to sit down with, with um, Dia had explained it. She was, I was the first white nationalist that she had met face to face and she was utterly terrified you know and for us to be friends now it's so unlikely and so so it seems to be unlikely it seems to be right? it's actually not right because like, the, the story they happen all the time they need to be told much more because i'm i hear that from so many former white supremacists that that friended like there was the one guy in charlottesville he worked with another with another exit group 
and he was he was beaten by by I don't know if it was Antifa or whatever, and he got really beaten. His jaw was broken and everything. And the cops wanted to arrest him. They pushed him on the ground and everything. And the black guy helped him. And they interviewed the the black guy and, and said, "Why?" He said, "Well, this is how the cops treat us too." And he, even though he's on the other side, and even though he hates me, he does not deserve to be treated like that because we know how it feels. So the black guy helped him up, and it helped him to get over his hate. Yep. The 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 former uh, the now former white supremacist. Right. He that that started the thinking process, and he was like, he was just puzzled. He was like, "Dude, I hate you. Why why do you help me? I don't right. get it." Exactly. And then he, then you realize. They have the same struggle that, that we had back then because he got beaten by the Antifa, by the cops, got arrested. And then you realize, shit, that's exactly how black people feel what's going on to them. And you have another commonality. And that's like, okay, shit. The problem lay somewhere else. And these stories just need to be told. I think I think one, one other thing I want to, to address too is um, there's a lot of former white supremacists, former former extremists out there. And I think the ways how we got to a point that we left a hate group, that they're often very different. I mean, we, we know the story, some, some had that one moment where their child was born, they didn't want to put their child in that hostile environment, hateful environment, or that one, in my case, it was two, I, I left uh, the clan, I almost opened up another group, and. Uh, it was the interaction with with a Muslim actually as well, the first one I really had a lot contact with. That I really it was not one moment. It took like six months, but it realized I realized that that I was just wrong with my with my expectations. Um, but how I got there, I mean these ways they, they seem to be very different, much more different than how how we all got in because they're they're much more the same. Even if you have a black gang member, if you have the jihadist, you have the white supremacist that sense for belonging, that looking for a purpose, that's, that's all very similar. Mm -hmm. But getting out, there's always the breaking point. And that is sometimes you get pushed in my case, and, I, and I'm very honest about that. Shit, I was afraid to go to prison. I, there was so much going on, the family was breaking apart, the government was involved and they took my kids away. And, and I was just so terrified. Of course, there was a lot of infighting, there was a lot of doubts, but only the infighting and the doubts, I believe, would not have pushed me out. I would have dealt with it somehow because I was I was hardwired. Look, I had three kids in the movement. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed. I was the most proud Aaron daddy. I was saving the white race there, you know? I was doing my duty. That, that would not have kept me from, 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 getting, from staying in. But um, it was a lot of legal pressure, too. I was just afraid. Informants that somebody would do something, I would get blamed for it, that I get framed, or whatever. I just didn't want to go to prison. That pushed me out a little bit. And you could say, okay, you only left because he was pushed out, because he was afraid of prison. Well, no, that was my trigger moment, my first trigger moment. And that's when I picked up the phone. I did something similar to what you did. You handed over the organization to somebody else. You could have disbanded it as well. Without turning it over to the feds, just say, okay, this is done, period. Delete everything that's on the computer, we're done. And I could have just dissolved the group. And I didn't. I picked up the phone. I had one member I trusted and said, okay, you're the new imperial representative, the new Grand Dragon. I'm gone. I'm stepping down. I'm retiring. I'm not coming back. Next year, you hold a conclave and you vote a new leader. 
I'm not coming back. So that was my, my self-defense, self-preservation, you know. I just protected myself there. And then my way went from there. So it's like we came on different ships, but now we're in the same boat. Right. And I think we have a lot of farmers out there in this, I call it, call it farmer's world, and the normal society doesn't know much about that. That also needs to see, we, we are sitting in the same boat. We have different stories. Yeah. And um, we're talking about compassion. And we all have to admit, if you talk to a former extremist, some make a step forward and two back. Right. And is again, we're broken people. We have PTSD. And we have to deal with demons we, we, we used to nurture for 20 years, 25, 27 years. Yeah. So I think we all have that. Yep. Everybody's, everybody's story on leaving is a little different. I mean, for me, uh, my exit story... Um, uh, you know, was there was no one aha moment, but there was many, many different little things that were building up. And um, my first, when I left, my first, my first step when I when I left was to write a retirement letter and then post that online. So I retired. I knew I was I was planning to speak out, but I wasn't ready to speak out. Mm. So I needed to take some time to. Well, see, you were further than I. I wasn't ready. I just, I just self-preservation. I just stepped down, and retired. Right. Yeah, I, I had planned on, I had planned on speaking out, but I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't ready for it. I call it like the, for me, I call it like the decompression period, because. But it, what kept you from speaking out earlier? Was it the fear of the society that maybe you're afraid? Hey, am I set to fail? Do I have a chance? What can I do? Mentally, it was so overwhelming the first few months after retiring. Um, it, it was, I'd say for months, there was days that I did not want to get out of bed. I was wondering if I was making a mistake in that, in that sense. You know, like I knew I didn't want to be involved anymore. So, I mean, that part wasn't the mistake, but it was like what at this age in, in my life and this is the only thing I've ever done like what next what and it's also an ideology you had for, for 27 years it's right. hard to leave that all behind you mm -hmm. need a long time I mean again you, you, you hardwired yourself for 27 years you're not getting rewired within a month right and people have to realize that too somebody who's out for a month for a year sometimes five years look I didn't Reflect on my anti-Semitism until, until like three years ago, 15 years after I got out. I wasn't an anti-Semite anymore, but I didn't talk about it. I, I said, okay, I know the Holocaust happened. It was a terrible thing. I did not believe in the Jewish world conspiracy anymore. She thought they're just people. But I never talked to any. I never met any in Germany because historically, unfortunately, there are not many. Here right. in the US, I met a couple, but there were business contacts and didn't talk about being Jewish, not being Jewish. And hell no, we didn't talk about my past. What am I supposed to go to do? Go to synagogue, knock at the door and say, I'm the former KKK leader and I want to talk. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you don't do that. You know, you, right. and that's also a fear of rejection. Every time mm -hmm. I talk to somebody who does not know about me and my past yet and what I do, I always have these 10 seconds of fear that they turn their back on me and walk away. Always. And in 99.9% .9 it did not happen. And Very you know, rarely. That, that sort of thing I think sticks with you and, that, and that's a holdover from the time in the movement. You know, like um, I know uh, in, in just dating and things like that, I would never, ever 
give my last name to a girl that I was seeing because I was like, man, if this girl finds out what I do, usually I would try to get them to know me first as a person. And then so they don't judge. So they don't judge. And then say, hey, guess what? You know, because they would ask, like, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a public speaker. Wasn't a lie because I, I was a public speaker in the yeah. movement, or I, I run a record label. That was wasn't a lie either. Yeah. I said, well, well, what's the record label? I don't have any business cards on me, or you know, I would make up excuses. That's what that's what I did in the first year when I got out. I call it like uh, alternative music, mm -hmm. and I distanced myself from the ideology. That's yep. all I said. I didn't define it. Right. It's the same thing I it was did. Just fear of rejection, and, and it's like living that life. And even now, like like you were saying, even now you kind of uh, when you're meeting new people that don't know who you are, you know, you just you kind of like, okay, well, what if? I mean, dating is a good example, but it's like anytime you're dating, you could Google the person. Right. If someone Google's Google's me. That's what comes up. It's it's. It's horrifying. And well, you're out just for a year. Right. It's not plastered as the former neo-Nazi leader. It's right. like leader of the NSM. Right. And it's not as clear. So that is even harder. But it's also the little things. I, I was in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago and uh, we're talking about there was a religious group there, a, a, a mainstream group. And the black counter girl there at the reception, she faced some racism from one of the It was actually Cardinal's wife who showed really blatant racism towards that black girl. And we were talking about it. And so she was like, so what are you guys doing? Well, and the person I was with was a 60-year-old Jewish woman. So it was easy. I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish and whatever. So, and about you? Well, I'm a public speaker. And then, like, the person I was with, she said, do you want to tell her what you do? And maybe not. And I said, whatever, screw it. I said, well, I'm a former white supremacist and I'm speaking out against hate. And she was so interested in, in what, I, what I'm doing, so I gave her a card and she looked me up. But I, it took me years to get to that point, to come to get over those five seconds, ten seconds of fear, how to word that and feeling comfortable with outing yourself. Yep. And this takes a while, especially I've been outed by the media a lot of times when I did not choose it. It's almost it's easier when you have the power when you are in charge. Mm -hmm. You're in power of outing yourself, and then you can choose the moment, you can choose the way, the medium, and everything instead of somebody else putting you there. This is the former Nazi, like shit. Right. <laughs> that, right. That, 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 it just doesn't feel good. That's maybe somebody a gay person feels if somebody just puts him out. Oh, here's he's gay. Right. No, you you want to come out yourself. So it's a great example, though, but that, that, that is true. You know, I mean, that is one of the things that uh, when you when you walk away, I think that a lot of people are concerned with. Yeah, but yeah. It, it's something we have to talk about. And a lot of people in the movement just don't know how to deal with that. Yeah. This is why it's important that those farmers that are out here are that helping hand and tell them, okay, look, if you want to join Antifa, what, whatever, it's your choice. I mean, I'm not keeping you from doing that. I right. may not agree with it. But you don't have to. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. You know, it's a free world. You have free will. There will be nobody like you were used to. You can't do this. You can't do this. You have to do it this way. No, you're in charge of your life. Exactly. Here you are. And I support you even if you do things I don't agree with. Even if you, Jeff, do something I don't agree with, well, we're still friends. Mm -hmm. And this is important. 
and we talk about it. So thank you for taking the time talking to me. Uh, any last words for the listeners? Uh, thank you for having me on. I think we should uh, um, continue the conversation and, and absolutely uh, uh, again. answer all these questions and, and uh, concerns that people have out there because I think there's so many. I think we just scratched the surface of it. And, um, you know, I look forward to working with you and, and uh, helping many, many more people uh, leave extremism. Well, if anybody who listens to this has questions about this conversation, about what we have talked, feel free to contact us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, TM Garrett and Jeff Scoop, or email directly to me, TM, at tmgarrett.com. And uh, we can continue the conversation at another point and actually address maybe questions that are coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. Thank, thank you. Thank you.